0: It is getting close to Christmas time, and I love, 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 love Christmas. Um, the only thing I don't love about Christmas is when the music starts, like a- after uh, Labor Day, and uh, that cake. What's that cake called? Uh, oh yeah, fruit cake. Yeah. See, I can't even say it. I had to have you say it. But anyway, apart from that, I love this time of year, and and I love one of the things I, I truly adore. About this time is that we get to tell a very simple story once again, and um, so that—that's what we will be doing for the next five weeks. We are going to focus on one simple story. It is a story that's been told millions of times since, uh, well, in the last 2016 years. Um, actually, it had been told millions of times before that. It's just that the specific details were a real mystery until the first Christmas. So, we're we're going to tell this story, and as I said, it's very simple, um, but but it's a story with a very devastating effect. Um, The the effect of this story is devastating to the kingdom of of evil and sin and darkness. Um, The story is devastating to pretty much every human institution of wickedness or corruption, But, but the greatest thing about this story is it's just devastating to the human heart. Um, in the best way possible. This story is, uh, is what the theologians call Advent, and actually they call it the Advent. And as Mark said a little earlier, um, Advent means coming. Uh, it points to the arrival or the emergence, um, could even be the birth, of someone who is world-changing. So notable, so profound, so unprecedented and and what happens is is when in this advent, everyone who he 's been promised to, everyone within his reach, then finally breathes this mighty exhale, finally, at last he 's here, and so we 're going to talk about the story of advent um, one more thing though, before we begin with this year 's advent. Um, this year, I'm going to try and do something I've never done before. I'm going to try and tell the story of Advent using only nine verses of Scripture spanning five weeks. So we are only going to be working through nine verses in uh, the book of Isaiah. And the warning is that during this time, we, we are going to sink to the depths of human depravity. But your spoiler alert is um, that we're also going to soar to the heights of God's love. And that's why this is just such a great story. That's why it never gets old. And my prayer for all of us this Advent is that this, this story becomes much, much, much more than that uh, to us, much, much more than a story, much, much more than something we look at once, uh, once a year. So um, let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we, we just stop today for a moment. Um, following some amazing worship, God following some just beautiful symbolism, just seeing a child get dedicated and making that connection that this is all about a child that came to us. And Lord, in, in the same way, Shiloh prayed that these wouldn't just be songs during worship. I pray that this will be more than some guy giving a message, that uh, God, you would meet us, that you would would arrive um, in every one of our spaces, Lord God, that you would appear on the landscape of our hearts, that Jesus, you would, you would truly just come to us in, in a way that is so profound, even if we've known you for, for years, decades of our life, that you would do something unprecedented and amazing within us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, first two verses uh, of Advent, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Every time I read that passage, I, I just I'm caught by that opening. Comfort, comfort my people. it's such, it's so sweet appealing inviting and 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 it's even sweeter when you realize who's speaking it you know this is the god of heaven saying to his people be comforted comfort them and and he's speaking comfort to them in isaiah 40 because quite frankly his people really really need comfort now they need it for this reason they need comfort because God's people at this point have spent a lifetime watching someone slowly die before their eyes. And the someone is themselves. Every time they look into a mirror, they see the evidence of spiritual death. They're decaying on the inside. And they also see it when they look around At everybody else in their world, all these people that come and go, all these people that they interact with. You know, it's it's dead men walking all around them spiritually. This is the situation they're in. It's this spiritual death. And what makes this thing so tragic, this death, what makes it so insane is that the whole thing is self-induced. These people have done it to themselves. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and, and, and this, in this part, if you've ever done the extra reading, you've looked at the history of God's people, you would never know this fact to talk to them because what they've done up to this point and what they're doing right here is they have blamed other people and they've blamed other powers for, the, for their misery, for their situation. They blamed, first of all, God for their situation, but they also blamed the, the, the nation of Assyria And so to talk to any Israelite in their day, they would say, look, you know, we are how we are right now, and we are where we are spiritually because our God has forgotten us. And more than that, the nation of Assyria, they've come in and they've invaded us. So how in the world do you expect us to trust and obey in light of all this? I mean, we are just victims of a crime, you know what I mean? mean, This has just happened to us. But see, the truth it tells a very different story about Israel. The truth is, the facts are, the reality is that centuries ago, they rebelled. They wandered away from their God, and they did it three, in three principal ways. Number one, in, in, in regards to kingship. You know, as far as Israel was concerned, early on, God wasn't visible enough for them as king. So what did they do? They demanded a human king like everybody else had, and they got what they wanted. God wasn't king enough for them. There's something else God wasn't enough for them, and it's visible in worship. God wasn't present enough, you know, through all the symbolism. It got kind of lost for the people of God. And so, what did they do? Well, they made idols like the other nations around them, and they worshiped them. And then, of course, we got a real tragic part of this. We don't like to talk about this very much. But God wasn't enjoyable enough for them in everyday life either. And so the people of God, they indulge themselves in all kinds of immorality, all different various times. There's more than one you know. And God's people, they dove into those waters. And so here when they're complaining, you know, we're in this bad place because our God forgot us, because our, you know, the other nations have invaded us, they are very conveniently forgetting in the midst of all this complaining that they are the real problem here. They are where they are, and it's all their fault. And so I I think I've made the point so far, right? Israel is in a dreadful, dark place Okay? It's bad. They're bad. This is kind of like, you know, this is the end kind of bad. And so, how are we supposed to make sense then of Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, these these sweet words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for, and that she has received double Uh, from, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. How do you make light of these words in light of all this garbage and blackness on the part of this people? And there's only one word that explains it all, and it's probably your favorite word in the English language, and the word is love. This is simply the great love of God. You know, God is saying here, look, despite your great sin and your slow spiritual suicide, I got a newsflash for you. You are still my people, and I am still your God. The love I had for you, I still have for you. The promises that I made to you, they're still good. The covenants that I cut with you, ah, they're still good as well. Your wickedness towards me will never stop my goodness towards you. And so the words from God are comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell them I've not forgotten them. Tell them I've not forsaken them. Why? Because now is the time of my compassion. Right now is the time of your healing and your salvation for me. And you know what when, when we hear all that? You know, even for me, I've read this story so many times before, but putting it together, i stopped in the, you know right in the mid-sentence, and I'm like, you know... I know that I know that I know that I know this backwards, forwards, all kinds of ways, but it's still incredible. This whole thing is so incredible. It's just unbelievable mercy. It's, it's even when you look at it from God's point of view, the whole thing is really unfair. I mean, His people, they made the deathbed that they're lying in, right? They did this to themselves. They walked out on God. They had it so good. They threw it all away. And then God comes after them like this, and God's heart is leading the way. It's just like the, most, the, the craziest story of unbelievable scandal and the just amazing, astounding, awesome, redeeming love. And that's why, when you really want to put this together and you say, okay, well, man, I'm having a hard time conceptualizing all of this. I need some kind of a vivid story, you know, an allegory to put it all together. There's only one allegory that makes sense of all of this, and it's in the Bible, and it's the story of Hosea. The the only way you can describe this is is his poor wife, and the reason she's his poor wife is because her name is Gomer. I would not wish that name on any woman, okay? But, you, you know, you have this woman, Gomer and she's married to this godly man. And, and, and the Lord has blessed them, but what does she do? She, she leaves him. She walks out on him, and, and, and basically, literally, actually, she prostitutes herself. And what does her husband Hosea do? He comes after her in the story. He finds her in the story. He redeems her in the story. He brings her back, and that story really tells tells the, the, you know this is just this place in Israel's life. Gomer represents faithless, faithless, faithless Israel, and Hosea represents our faithful God. And I love the ending to their story in the book of Hosea. God says to His people, "There, I will heal your waywardness, and I will love you freely." That's Isaiah forty in a nutshell. That's exactly what God is doing here in this passage. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service is completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, not a whole lot more to it than that. The problem, though, at this point in, in the text is we still have a couple of really, really big questions about Isaiah 41 and 2. And, and the two big questions are well, who is God telling to comfort Israel and Jerusalem? Who, who is God telling to do that? And the second one is, what's this business? What's this stuff of receiving double punishment for Israel's sins? My friends. That's what the first Advent is all about. Okay, the answer to those two questions, and we'll have more on that in a minute, but first, there's one more very important connection we have to make from Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, before we move on, and it's it's a little personal, okay? So, um, I'll step on your shoes, but I've been stepping on my shoes as well this week as I do this, so you'll be okay. But here's the other connection we have to make. In Isaiah 40, when God offers them comfort, because they need it, God is offering us comfort because we need it. Uh, Translation, when God is talking to them about their sins, God is also talking to us about our sins. And when you say, well, what sins specifically do you mean? The exact same sins as the people of God were guilty of, so are we these days, 21st century. Nothing's changed. And I know you and I can hear that today and, you know, kind of fire back in protest and say, no, wait a minute. You know, it's, it's kind of rude on a Sunday morning after all that great praise and worship. But, but, but you're going to have to prove this to me because when did I, in my life, forsake God for other idols? I, I, I just, I, I don't remember seeing an idol at my house that my family bows and prays to. You know, when did I reject God as king and demand a human king? And when it comes to immorality, when in my life did I ever commit any form of immorality? Well, forget that one, scratch that one. But the first two, when did I do those things? Brothers and sisters, friends, not just speaking at you, but speaking right back at me. We have spent a lifetime before Jesus Christ, and if we're honest, We still do it as believers from time to time, doing everything that is mentioned here in a variety of different ways. We have worshiped. Steve Keller, in my life, I have worshiped many other things that are not God, okay? Now, I might not get a full-piece band and, you know, bow and all this stuff, but to worship from the heart, I've worshiped other things. Am I alone in the room today? Thank God. Okay, good, good. Okay, that feels better. Um, you know, we, we, when it comes to other kings, we have all rejected God's rule in our lives at different times. We have let other people rule over us. For some of us, we've been the one who, who, who have taken command and taken the reins. And when it comes to immorality, it is all around us. Our culture is so soaked in it. We've all been party to immorality in some form or another. And the point is here that that we have spent a lifetime doing the same thing, and we are like the nation of Israel in that when it comes to our sin, we also play the blame game. We point the finger. We pass the buck. We pin our destruction or our darkness on other people and other powers. I made a short list. Like to hear it, here it go. Uh, What's wrong with me? in my life. is his fault. He started it, right? Have we ever done that? Yes, we have. I'm held back, but it's not my fault I'm held back. I'm held back because of the society I live in, because of the powers that are against me. She's to blame. Not you, Caritha. I would never put that on you, my sister. Never, because she's my encourager. But, you know, we do that with people. We say, you know, she's to blame for the emotional distress in my life. I'm mean to my children because my father was mean to me. I'm absent for my daughter because my mother was absent in my life. I'm hooked on, not phonics, but whatever it is, I'm hooked on all kind of stuff because I was bullied in school. I did what I did and I do what I do because somebody did it to me. Folks, we do this stuff. And we conveniently forget that despite what happened in our life yesterday, we sin today. And I'm not going to preach all day long about it, but I think we need to acknowledge the fact that we do this. And I know for, for, for many of us, you know, we might have been a victim for a moment or a season, but in the long haul, the sin is on us. And that's why when I was 16 years old, and I got arrested for breaking an entry, uh, uh, entry. Yeah, an entry. I got arrested for breaking an entry, right? Um, Detective Landry in the Wilmington Sheriff's Department, he didn't let me walk in there and say, you know what happened here? It's Adam and Eve's fault. He would have fired back in one second and said, well, you know what? Adam and Eve weren't in the garage with you stealing your neighbor's beer. It was you, Steve. You did it. But listen to me. Listen. Just as the sin is ours today like it was back then, so is the comfort of God. God. God extends the same love to us, the same tenderness, the same compassion to you and I that he did back then. And that's what the first advent is all about. It is that one person comes and he answers both of those questions for us. And you got it right if you you know if you gave the Sunday school answer, Jesus Christ is the person. Jesus is the one. And so you see what's happening in Isaiah 40 I mean, the light bulb might have just gone off for you. You know what was happening there? God was having a prophetic conversation with Jesus 700 years earlier, saying, you're going to go down there. You are going to go down there to those people, and you are going to comfort them, and you are going to be doubly punished for their sins. And so that's what happens on the first Christmas 2016 years ago Jesus Christ is born into our world. He's born into the world, and he comes through a woman like any other infant, except that um, when, when you ask him the question, who's your daddy? His daddy is God. His father is God, and so that makes him the son of God. Jesus comes as the son of God in unbelievable humility, and he comes without the sin of this world, Well, how can he pull that off? Because he's not from this world. And on the night of his birth, there is cosmic rejoicing. Everything that is tuned into God is rejoicing. We've got shepherds who catch a glimpse of what's happening. Out in the fields, you you have angels drawn in from heaven. You've got the stars in the sky. Together, they're crying, hallelujah, here he is. Here is the one Finally, finally, the beginning of the end of this oppression, this death. God's love is here, and it will burn, and it will catch fire, and it'll consume all kinds of lost people. And y'all, because that's a matter of historical fact, we can actually look back, and we just did this in the election, right? We can look back and we can fact check that one, okay? Read the Gospels. Jesus Christ in his interactions with people, did he do exactly that? Did he bring the comfort, the love, the compassion, the healing, the salvation of God? Check. Check the box. He did it. He nailed it. But before Jesus leaves the earth, he will also pay doubly for our sins. And it is beautiful, but it's also tragic and sad in the same way. And I know you could hear that today and go, no, wait wait, 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 I know about the cross, but that Jesus Christ is paying doubly for their sins, is that what was going on here in Isaiah? It actually is. It's not a stretch at all. Verse 2, it does not say Israel will pay for her sins. God says, you tell Israel her sins have been paid for. That is a big, big difference. If you want to know what it says in the Hebrew... Um, The Hebrew literally reads, tell Israel, you're going to love this, okay? Tell Israel her warfare has been accomplished. She has been pardoned of all sin. And so what that means when it comes to this double payment, it means somebody else is going to pay double for Israel's sins. Someone else went to war. Someone else battled. Someone else won the victory in Israel's place. Someone else was punished, and it was not Israel. And again, the someone is Jesus Christ. He came into the world as the Son of God, right? But on that cross... He became the Lamb of God, and that is the glory and the beginning of what happens right there in Advent. His life begins in a manger, but it ends on a cross. Jesus Christ is sacrificed on our behalf. He alone faces the double punishment, and y'all, through the cross of Jesus Christ, it starts on the first Christmas night, and and it happens after the tomb. But it happens, the comfort, the tenderness, the love of God comes to us from a cross. Then, three days later, after he dies on that cross, Jesus Christ is resurrected. And the only thing we read about, and from this point on, when it comes to Jesus, is a word that we used to say in my Southern Baptist church it's a word called Glory. It's just glory after that, you know, incredible glory. You know, instead of a dead man in a tomb, which is really what you ought to find in this situation, there's not a dead man in the tomb. There's a living Lord outside of the tomb. You know, he, he's not wrapped up in all kind of, you know, nasty brown three-day-old clothes from a death. He's covered in white, and he's so glorious, and he's so radiant. And, you know, we're talking about comfort, but the love, the power, the the goodness, the salvation of God is just radiating off of Jesus so much so that even Mary Magdalene can't recognize him. I I would argue today, if anyone ever knew what Jesus looked like, it is Mary Magdalene. She is Jesus' puppy dog in the New Testament. I mean, after she meets him, she's everywhere. She can't even recognize the man. But all of that is simply to say that in Jesus Christ, all is paid, all is forgiven. Jesus Christ delivers the riches of God's love, God's mercy, God's salvation, God's comfort to every one of us. And so the question we end with today, in light of all this, what else can we do? What else can we do in light of Advent, the comfort of God? Salvation that came our way through the cross, in light of that, what else can we do other than accept the one who did all of this for us? How can you respond in any other way but to, to, to invite him, to welcome him into your heart as Lord and God and Savior? And you see today why so many people have done this. If you think, Steve, man, you're jacked up today, I am jacked up. Here's why. Advent is a really, really big deal. It is the biggest deal ever. You know, we, we talk about life and death decisions all the time, and you know, most of the time it's you know, it's not a life and death decision. This is one, though. This is the one. Eternally, this is the one true life and death decision we will ever make. In Advent, we are offered, we're invited, we're given the opportunity to. Say yes to life and to live again. And if you want to picture George Bailey, you'll watch this in a couple weeks, on the bridge at the end where he's praying, and it's not snowing, and he says, God, I want to live. I really, really want to live again. And then, of course, it starts snowing. He's alive. It's, it's, it's just that kind of a heart moment. This is what our God does. Knowing that you can be free, knowing that you can be alive forever, forever. Why in the world would anybody choose death? If this world is just a shadow, oh my gosh, how can you let this world be it for you? So today, in Jesus' name, before you guys play, y'all have been so patient to wait for me. I appreciate it. Today, let me pray for us. They're going to lead us in a song, and then we're going to do one little thing that's really cool to end the service. Let me get this out of the way. Father, in Jesus' name, oh God, we love Jesus. We love everything about Jesus. We could be like, like John, the, uh, uh, the writer John, uh, the disciple John who, who says in 1 John, I have looked at Jesus over from every possible angle. I've walked with him for three years. I've touched him, I've heard him, I've seen him. I've tasted, even tasted and I've seen. He is the Lord and he is good. So Father, in Jesus' name, we just opened the door of our hearts to you. And God, we get so hung up on our sin and what we're not and how we've missed it. But you dealt with all of that by coming to us through the manger. You dealt with all of that by dying on the cross. And there is an offer on the table from heaven and it is to live. And Jesus Christ is the one and only way. He is the one name that secures that life for us. So God, we say yes to your comfort. We say yes to your tenderness. We say yes to your love. Oh, Father God, you're so good. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Lord, would you just make heaven's reality just true for us right now. And for anybody on the fence, let me just say this. Old Testament verse, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts like you have in times past. Open up, let him in, invite him in Jesus' name.